On January 13, 1982, the Winnipeg Jets and the Pittsburgh Penguins met in what should have been a regular Wednesday night game between two middling NHL teams. The Penguins were hovering one game above the 500 mark, and the Jets were well on their way to a 33 win in 82 game season. In a 6-1 victory for the Jets over the Penguins, the storyline was taken away from the six-goal outburst by the Manitoba-based team and was instead dominated by the penalty-filled second period. Paul Gardner of the Penguins had cross-checked Jets left winger Doug Smale, forcing him to leave the game injured. In retaliation, the Jets' Jimmy Mann sucker-punched Gardner twice, knocking him to the ice and breaking his jaw. During this time, the NHL was publicly trying to shift its image away from the goon image that it had developed over the previous decades, and this incident itself was not helping. Shortly after, on January 24th, the LA Kings played the Vancouver Canucks. With the Kings leading 3-2 in the second period, a fight broke out involving Ron Delorme. New Los Angeles Kings coach Don Perry told Paul Mulvey to go over the boards and instigate a fight without saying, but insinuating, that he wanted to have a bench-clearing brawl. Mulvey refused to go over the boards. He did not see any reason to do so. His players were not outnumbered, the score of the game was not out of hand, and doing so would guarantee him a three-game automatic suspension. Of course, eventually the benches did clear, and Mulvey went over the boards, but did not fight. He simply went over the boards to support his team. After the game, Perry told the media he did not want Mulvey on his team anymore, and Mulvey was immediately placed on waivers and sent to New Haven, Connecticut, the American Hockey League affiliate team. The Players Association filed a grievance on his behalf, and the NHL intervened and suspended Coach Perry 15 games for his actions. The NHL was trying to take a stand, not so much against fighting, but forcing players to fight and the role that Perry encouraged his players to participate in. Especially considering this action would automatically lead to a three-game suspension for the player. After these two incidents, the conversation of hockey fights, the role of the enforcer, and its place in the hockey world was in full swing. We like to think today that the role of the enforcer was something that left hockey in our lifetime or during our fandom of the sport. However, it began much earlier and took nearly 30 years to really reach the point where we could comfortably say that hockey was much more skill-focused and under control than the way it was. Following these two incidents, a former NHL fighter penned a letter to his son expressing his thoughts on what had transpired. Dave Schultz wrote his letter openly and it was published in the New York Times on February 7, 1982. Schultz was a well-known name in hockey circles and had just recently retired from the game. Towards the end of his letter, he wrote that he couldn't help but think back to the years as a child growing up in Saskatchewan, where hockey was fun and he wanted it to be fun for his children as well. He didn't see how in the previous weeks, the NHL had demonstrated to its fans that the game should be played with skill, not toughness, and be celebrated for being fun. This of course seems somewhat comical and nearly hypocritical coming from Dave the Hammer Schultz. He was a well-known quantity having played nine years in the NHL, mostly with the Philadelphia Flyers, and was a mainstay in their Broad Street Bullies phase. The Flyers dominated the NHL physically through intimidation, team determination, and toughness, while bowling their way to two Stanley Cup championships and a third final 
even chasing the Soviet Union touring hockey team off the ice during one game. There were many former All-Stars who had spoken out about violence in hockey, but who was Dave Schultz to educate us on how hockey was supposed to be played? Schultz played 535 NHL games over nine seasons. In those 535 games, he recorded 79 goals and 121 assists. Numbers that were not exceptional, however, did make him a useful contributor over that time. It was his ability to collect penalty minutes that made him a fan favorite, as he recorded 2,292 penalty minutes over that time. In fact, in 1974-1975, he set the NHL record for penalties in a season with 472 in 76 games. Among the NHL record books, there is a small collection of records that people believe are safe. Wayne Gretzky's career point total, his points in a single season, or goals in a season are likely safe. Timu Solani's 76 goals as a rookie is likely a record that is locked in forever. I doubt that we will see anyone approach Ken Dryden's 650 winning percentage or Bill Mozienko's three goals in 21 seconds. Add to that list the penalty minute record that Schultz set, and those are likely the collection of NHL records that are secured for our lifetimes at a minimum. So how does a player who recorded 472 penalty minutes in a single season do so in a way that is celebrated? We certainly don't look back on his record as a blemish in the history of hockey, but more of as an accomplishment. How can someone who accomplished 472 penalty minutes in one year write an open letter to his son less than two years after retiring about minimizing the place that violence has in hockey? We have to look at the season that Schultz had as less of an individual accomplishment and through the wider lens of why the Flyers enlisted so many physically talented players. How did Schultz collect so many penalty minutes? In the seasons that Schultz played for the Flyers, how many penalty minutes did he collect and what was the immediate impact on the team? By approaching the record in a different way, we can make sense of how it happened, while at the same time understanding that the record holder genuinely hopes that for the good of the game it never gets broken. Hi, I'm Travis Duncan, and I once watched a beer league hockey player throw his glove at a referee. And this is Storytime Hockey. David Schultz was born in Waldheim, Saskatchewan, just north of Saskatoon, in an area heavily settled early on by Mennonites from the United States. He played junior hockey with the Swift Current Broncos in their inaugural Western Hockey League season and quickly established himself as a useful and skilled player. He recorded 35 goals and 34 assists in their 1967-1968 year, however he did record 138 penalty minutes. The following year, he had 32 points in 33 games with the Broncos before completing his year with the Sordal Blackhawks in the Quebec Junior A-League. This was good enough to see him drafted in the fifth round of the 1969 NHL entry draft by the Philadelphia Flyers. This is where we need to take a break from Schultz and look to the team he was drafted by. The Philadelphia Flyers had joined the NHL in their first major expansion in 1967. The NHL, in an effort to guarantee the success of their new franchises, placed the new teams in one division while the pre-existing teams played out in the other. When it came to playoffs, this would secure one spot in the NHL Finals 
for one of the expansion teams. In the 1968 and 1969 playoffs, the Philadelphia Flyers came up against the St. Louis Blues. The Blues were coached by Scotty Bowman and had players like Barclay and Bob Plager, Al Arbor, and Noel Picard, famous for tripping Bobby Orr as he scored his winning goal, commemorated in one of the most famous photos of NHL history. Despite having finished first in their division, the Flyers lost in seven games to the St. Louis Blues in 1968, and then the following year lost in a sweep to the Blues again. Owner Ed Snyder was incensed. He wasn't concerned about losing as much as it was how the team had lost. During an interview in the early 2000s, Snyder recounted that he went to GM Keith Allen after the second playoff defeat to the Blues and said, We are an expansion team. We may not be able to skate. We may not have great players. But we can go out and get the toughest sons of bees in the world. And I don't want to see our team get beat up ever again. Snyder and Allen saw a direct correlation between success in the playoffs and which team was tougher. Somewhat predicting the events of future years, he said, I don't give a damn about having one policeman. Let's have five or six. When we look at the Flyers roster, the Flyers had already selected Ed Van Imp from the Chicago Blackhawks during the expansion draft. They also had Gary Dornhofer and Bob Kelly. In the 1969 draft, they added players like Dave Schultz, Don Selesky, and Bobby Clark. The importance of this draft cannot be overlooked. Selesky was a strong and tough player who would go on to collect a multitude of penalties on his own. Dave Schultz would go on to set records. However, it was the presence of Bobby Clark that released Bird on the Flyers. The thing with penalties is that there needs to be a reason to take them. Players did not skate onto the ice and fight somebody. There had to be some sort of event or reason, and the Flyers often had one. Under coach Fred Shiro, the team became a tight-knit group, and more than ever, they rallied around Bobby Clark. Clark himself wasn't a pushover, as the forward went on to collect 1,453 penalty minutes of his own. As the Flyers rounded into the 1970s, Snyder's vision for his team was starting to take form. His team was skilled, skilled enough to win, but they were also fortunate enough to have a goaltender like Bernie Perron. Now they had the toughness, and this is where Dave Schultz joins the team. He had made his professional debut with the Salem Rebels in the 1969-70 season and immediately made an impact on the squad. Every team wishes that their rookies could walk into a lineup and record 32 goals and 37 assists, yet it was also here where Schultz had his first fight. He recalls it as just a fight, just a single fight. And then he had a second and a third, and it continued from there as he went on to collect 356 penalty minutes in his first year. His next year, he advanced to the American Hockey League with the Quebec Aces, where he recorded 14 goals, 23 assists, to accompany his astonishing and league-leading 382 penalty minutes. His final year outside of the NHL, he played with the Richmond Robins and recorded 18 goals and 28 assists, with another league-leading 392 penalty minutes. For Schultz, it had become clear, despite being somewhat gifted offensively, he was not going to establish himself in the NHL as the type of player who would score goals. And if he could not score goals, he may not establish himself in the NHL at all. He even said of himself that he wasn't exceptionally gifted physically, but mentally he had an edge on his opponents. 
It is important to note that hockey at this point was nothing like it is today. We are looking at an entire 50 year difference in time. It's worth taking a look at some of the greatest players of this era and the type of hockey that was played. Sticks were used almost as weapons, and players were openly attempting to injure each other in an effort to hinder them from scoring. Junior and national teams prior to joining the NHL were not established like they are today, so many players did not know each other before getting to the NHL. There were only 12 teams in the league, and with them divided into two divisions, the rivalries would be built not only on frequency of playing each other, but also the desire to be seen as the best of their group. It is impossible to compare this expansion to that of the Vegas Golden Knights or of the upcoming Seattle franchise. While they will have geographic rivalries, these teams joined the league with five others as opposed to being individual entries. The need to be able to hold their own both on the score sheet and physically on the ice was higher than it would ever be again. It was in this world that Schultz entered the Flyers lineup in 1972. He had an owner who refused to be pushed around and embarrassed. A team full of players fully capable of holding their own and encouraging their teammates to do so. And supported by their captain, Van Imp, and the burgeoning future captain, Clark. In this first year with the team, Schultz led the league in penalty minutes with 259. It is also worth noting that during this season, GM Keith Allen decided that he needed to, as Snyder said, add a fifth or sixth policeman. And traded for Andre Moose Dupont from the St. Louis Blues. The Flyers did their best to establish themselves as the physical specialists of the NHL. Schultz led the league with 259 minutes in penalties. Bob Kelly had 238. Don Seleski had 205. Gary Dornhofer had 168. And Dupont had 164 in only 46 games of the squad, with a season total of 195. Barry Ashby rounded out the Century Penalty Minute Club with 106. The following season of 1973 and 1974 was extremely important to the context of Schultz's record breaking penalty minute year. In this season again, the Flyers would use their physical abilities to push their way through the NHL. They were booed in opposing arenas, as newspapers would call them criminals in the cities that they visited. Owner Ed Snyder Relished this role as his Flyers were not only winning fights and no longer being intimidated or pushed around, but they were also winning. He stated that he was constantly fighting with the league offices over the way that his team played, but he was adamant that no one had ever said that his team could not employ more than one single enforcer, or as he referred to them, policemen. We didn't break any rules, he would say, we just enhanced them. Schultz again led the league with 348 penalty minutes, establishing a new record for the NHL. However, the most important penalty minutes he would earn would be in the playoffs that year. The Flyers would finish the season with a record of 50 wins, 16 losses, and 12 ties to place first in their division. In the first round, they would come up against the Atlanta Flames and sweep them 4-0, which would include a 3-2 overtime win in Game 4. Where Schultz would record a fight against Brian Hextall, as well as a game winning goal. They would then take on the Rangers in a seven game series in the semifinals and would win that seventh game 4 3, with Gary Dornhofer scoring the winning goal. 
This would place them in the Stanley Cup Finals against the Bobby Orr-led Boston Bruins. Fred Chiro knew that the Flyers would be in for a difficult battle, and no matter what he would do, he would not be able to coach his team to keep the puck away from the slick-skating defensemen from Perry Sound, Ontario. Shiro's next coaching tactic was one of those is just so crazy it might work moments. He encouraged the Flyers to give the puck to Bobby Orr at every occasion in an effort to wear him down consistently over the series. Orr would still lead the series with seven points, but the Flyers would win the championship, becoming the fastest expansion team to win a cup in only their seventh year. Schultz would record 38 penalty minutes in the final, only behind Boston's Wayne Cashman, who had 41, well ahead of Boston forward Terry O'Reilly, who had 25. Schultz was accompanied by the Flyer squad of DuPont with 33 and Jimmy Watson with 30. This is the last and most important aspect leading up to Schultz's record-setting season. The NHL to a fault is a copycat league. Simply look at the Flyers' reasoning behind gaining a physical or tougher element to their team. It was not an original idea. They were pushed around by the Blues and figured they could win by doing the same thing. It continues in the modern NHL as well. In 2010, the Stanley Cup Final was battled between two goalies, Michael Layton and Antti Niemi. And everybody began to second-guess how much money needed to be spent at the goaltending position. The Pittsburgh Penguins have had two centers Crosby and Malkin, and have competed for a Stanley Cup for nearly 15 years. So teams have continuously looked for their own two-headed monster. We can look at Edmonton and Toronto as examples of this. The NHL is amazingly creative, but also not creative, in the way that management and teams find ways to improve and become the best in the sport right before 30 other teams try and copy them. This leads us to the 1974-1975 season, which would become the perfect storm for Dave Schultz. Owner Ed Snyder wanted a tough team, and he could provide that. The Flyers were experiencing success in playing this way, and so Schultz had no reason to stop. They protected themselves and did not allow anyone to push them around, and it was not going to change in this year. Lastly, and perhaps most importantly, the Flyers were now champions. The fact that they had won the NHL championship cannot be overlooked. Teams at this professional level would now rise to the occasion to play against the best, compete their hardest against the best, and if they had to, fight against the best. Following his career, Schultz discussed how he was able to collect so many penalty minutes. Part of it was the way that the rules worked, especially with the instigators, as he was able to initiate a fight with the only real repercussion being the five minutes and penalties. There was no instigator penalty like there is today. He would also be fined for many of his actions, however, he claims he never paid a single one of those fines during his career. In another discussion, he pointed out that when his team was losing, there was no real reason for him not to go out and get involved in some sort of violent incident. For him, if his team was losing, with only a few minutes left, or it was clear that his team was not going to be mentally competitive that night, he would go out and set the tone for either the next game his team played in, or the next game against that current opponent. No better example exists than the season opening game against the Los Angeles Kings on October 10th, or during the 8th game of the season while visiting the California Golden Seals. The opening game of the year should be a celebratory affair for a reigning championship team. That was not to be the case, as the Flyers would lose 5-3. Down one goal early in the first, 
Schultz took his first misconduct of the game and would be sent off for 10 minutes. In the second period, he would fight Daniel Maloney while the Kings were up 3-2 and then receive a second misconduct penalty following the whistle of the Kings' fourth goal. He would also record a slashing penalty to finish a game off with 27 penalty minutes. Snyder's vision was coming true. His team may lose, but they would certainly not be pushed around. Not only were the Flyers not going to be pushed around, they would hold on to grudges as well, especially when it came to the treatment of their star captain Bobby Clark. In 1973, Clark had high-sticked Golden Seals defenseman Barry Cummins. Cummins retaliated by turning around and swinging his stick back at Clark. Cummins came out of the physical altercation on the better end, only having three stitches, compared to Clark who had 12. However, Cummins was fined $300 and a 5-1 win for the Flyers. The Flyers were now coming off a Stanley Cup win and had an opportunity to rekindle some poor relationships and this game fell quickly into penalty antics. We also need to remember that the Flyers and the Seals joined the NHL at the same time. They were expansion rivals, battling for a spot of relevance with five other teams. Adding to this narrative was the fact that Cummins never really played in the NHL outside of that one 1973 year. Those 36 games were his only ones in the National Hockey League, as he had come from the WHL and finished his career in the American League. Had he been a seasoned NHL veteran, perhaps the storyline would have played out differently. But this was a journeyman player at best, who swung at Clark. The Flyers team rallied around their leader. Clark was by no means untouchable, but you just had to be careful if you did. The first period was comparatively calm as the game went scoreless. The Seals' Michael Christie fought Schultz, and Schultz picked up an additional slashing penalty. The Flyers picked up two additional minor penalties, the Seals had one. This was nothing unusual for hockey at the time. However, the game quickly deteriorated as the Seals scored two goals within 90 seconds during the second period. Seals' John Stewart fought Schultz, and the Flyers picked up seven minor penalties in comparison to the Seals' two. Andre Dupont took back-to-back hooking and charging penalties, followed by Schultz for roughing. And then later in the period, Thomas Bladden earned a slashing call, followed by Dupont on a cross-check and then back-to-back penalties to Dornhofer and Van Imp. The Seals would add a power play goal during Bladon's penalty and were up 3-0. Following a third-period goal by Seals' Joey Johnson, the penalty list truly took off. At 8 minutes and 20 seconds of the third period, the largest bench brawl that the two young franchises had seen to this point broke out. The Golden Seals account of the fight has Orest Krindachuk and Mike Christie fighting, while Seleski, after the fight, tried to convince Christie to leave the penalty box and return to the ice. With all eyes on Seleski and Christie, Flyers Kinderchuk was able to skate right by into the Seals penalty box and fight Christie again. This time, however, he was joined by Bob Kelly, while Kelly and Kinderchuk focused their efforts on Christie, the rest of the team crowded around the box, blocking the Seals from getting to their player. Game misconducts would be handed out to the Seals Christie, Leonard Frigg, Jim Nielsen, as well as Flyers Bob Kelly, Oras Kinderchuk, Don Seleski, and Dave Schultz. Flyers goalie Bobby Taylor and Seals keeper Gary Simmons would also be assessed leaving the crease penalties. With reduced benches, including only two listed defensemen left for the Seals, Rick McLeish would score a morale-boosting goal for the Flyers at 18:41 in the third, 
to leave the game with a 4-1 final. The Flyers finished the game with 144 penalty minutes, compared to California with 88. In both of these examples, it is clear that Schultz was well on his way to collecting insane totals of penalties during this season. With the support of Snyder and his teammates, it was also clear that the Flyers, having already won their first Stanley Cup, were well on their way to something special again, and perhaps challenging for a second. However, a tactic only has value if it is successful. The Flyers had three players that made the 1974 and 75 season the most successful in their franchise's history. First, they had Bobby Clark, who finished sixth in the NHL in scoring, but tied for first with 89 assists, winning the Hart Memorial Trophy for league MVP. Second, they had Bernie Parent, who despite bouncing around teams from 1966 to 73, found a home and his greatest success in Philadelphia, and he won the Vezina Trophy as the league's most valuable goaltender that year. Third, the team had Schultz. The Hammer recorded 9 goals and 17 assists, but would set the record with 472 penalty minutes that year. Behind these three players, the Flyers finished first in the NHL, and the only three-way tie recorded for regular season standings. They gained first place behind their 52 wins, in comparison to the Sabres 49 and the Canadiens 47. While it is easy to draw the line between Clark and Perron helping the Flyers win games, how can it be proven that the 26 fights, which account for 130 minutes and penalties, that Schultz took part in helped at all? For that we had to take a dive into his game-by-game stats. I specifically looked at games where Schultz recorded more than 10 minutes and penalties of which there were 15 of them, and in those games, the Flyers only won 6, not an exceptional winning record. However, Schultz did say that he was setting the tone and preparing his team for the next game, and Snyder was encouraging Schultz to, as he said, beat up every guy that used to beat us up one at a time. So how did the fights help the Flyers win? In the games that followed Schultz recording 10 penalty minutes or more, the Flyers won 11 of 15 many of them convincingly. It quickly became clear that Schultz's major penalty minute collecting games were not as focused on winning the game at hand, but were preparation for the following match. If we focus on the games where Schultz collected those penalty minutes, the Flyers did only win six, but only two of them jump out as significant. On December 13th visiting the Flames in Atlanta, he recorded a high stick, a roughing, a fighting, a misconduct, and a game misconduct by the 8 minute and 52 second point of the first period. This was a team he had eliminated the year prior with his overtime heroics. The second game that jumps out was against the Blackhawks on March 29th, where he earned a double misconduct at 5.40 of the first period. It becomes quite clear that, in the games that Schultz collected penalty minutes, the focus was no longer on winning the game. It was very much focused on how the team could win the next game. Schultz would end the year with 472 penalty minutes, surpassing his own record from the previous year, which had already obliterated the original record, set in 1971 by Keith Magnuson, who had 289 minutes. The Flyers would ride the play of their three stalwart players on their way to their second consecutive Stanley Cup Final, where they defeat the Buffalo Sabres in six games in what would become a foggy affair. Schultz would go on to be traded to the Kings in September 1976, as if to prove his value to the Flyers. In their first preseason game after his trade, the team lost 5-2, and the headlines dramatically read, 
Flyers beaten by Islanders 5-2 after trading Schultz to Los Angeles. It was, after all, only a preseason game. However, it did undercut how important Schultz was to the team from the public point of view. Their first regular season game, also against the Islanders, they lost as well 3-0. The Flyers only took 4 minutes in penalties. Schultz would go on to feature for the Kings, Penguins, and Sabres before his career came to an end in 1979, nine years after his debut. The Sabres and Schultz came to an agreement to cancel his $120,000 a year contract and terminate his final year. The purpose of this research certainly wasn't to glorify the violence that the Flyers used to bully their way to two Stanley Cup championships and three finals in a row. Even Schultz himself clearly understands his role in the game was at one point valuable, but now is not. He emphasized in his letter to his son that hockey should be fun and should focus on skill. However, when a record is widely considered to be safe from challenges for decades, you have to wonder how exceptional a circumstance it was that the player had the opportunity to challenge and create it. And it truly doesn't seem like there will be a challenge to it anytime soon. Leading up to the current pause in the NHL season, Nick Delorier led the NHL in fights with 14, twice that of the second place Austin Watson. Not only are there less fights, but less players willing to engage in the fights and collection of random penalty minutes. Players who take 10-minute misconduct penalties for their own actions are now seen as selfish and not team-oriented. Evander Kane led the NHL with 122 penalty minutes. No disrespect meant to Dave Schultz, but Kane is a far superior hockey player and far more important to his team's success than Schultz was. Kane also led the league as well last year with 153 minutes, Michael Healy the year before with 212, and Mark Borowiecki in the 2016-2017 season had 154 penalty minutes to lead the league. These totals do not even come close to the record that Schultz set. Simply put, Schultz's record is safe thanks to the team ownership at the time, who was dedicated to not necessarily winning, but never to be embarrassed again, the ability of Schultz to always find another player to enter the altercation, the ability of Schultz to lead his team to a win in the following game, and as Schultz said himself, the willingness of the team to protect each other. The next section of the podcast will focus on players that you may or may not have forgotten about. With no real rhyme or reason to the selection of these players, this portion of the podcast will be dedicated to the players that score occasionally, get traded for second round picks, and sometimes even win an award. This is Storytime Hockey, the players you forgot about. Hockey is a strange sport, and the way that it is a very niche sport in the wider North American sports scene, yet it still holds such an important role in many communities. Professional hockey comes in behind American football, baseball, and basketball in terms of popularity, and arguably is being approached very quickly by the rise of soccer. Yet in the Canadian psyche, hockey maintains a place as the number one sport in the nation. Yet hockey is a sport that can no longer claim to be dominated completely by Canadians. The United States is producing high-end players, 
at a pace that is approaching similar to the Canadian hockey market. Finland seems to produce a top 15 goalie every year, Sweden is no slouch on the international stage, and Russia won the most recent Olympic gold medal despite not having any NHL players competing in the tournament. It was the team that they beat in that final that draws our attention today. In my mind, Germany has always been a peripheral hockey nation, usually in the top tier. However, in recent iterations of hockey tournaments, it has been relegated and promoted with the likes of Kazakhstan, Latvia, Denmark, and Slovenia. And prior to researching, I thought the nation of Germany had produced plenty of quality NHL players. That's when I began to notice an early trend. Many of the players of the 1960s through 1990s who were German were born in Germany during post-World War operations to Canadian and American parents. Only nine NHL players who played under the German nationality have actually recorded 100 points in the NHL. The only current player on that list is Leon Dreisaitl, who with 422 career points will likely pass leader Jochen Hecht of 463 points as the leading goal scorer from Germany in NHL history at some point mid next year. The list includes names such as Marco Sturm, Christian Erhoff, Dennis Seidenberg, and Marcel Gotch. Eventually I landed on the page of Walt Kachuk, a former 13 year veteran with the New York Rangers and a frequent name that popped up during NHL discussions of the 1970s. Walt was born in Emstetten, Germany, to Ukrainian parents where they had settled after moving around for a couple years. When he was three, his father moved to Canada to find work and earned enough money to move his family overseas. When his father earned enough money working as a laborer in the mines, his family was moved to be with their father in South Porcupine, Ontario, a former single municipality east of Timmins, which was amalgamated as part of the city in 1973. He began playing hockey as part of the natural activities that children took part in during the winter. Walt said that he did not know that he was a better hockey player than anyone else. He was focused on taking part in the sport with his friends and simply enjoying the game. The only equipment that he required to pay for was shin pads, skates, and a stick, as the mine paid for the ice time for families of the community. When he was 16 years old, the Kitchener Rangers of the Ontario Hockey Association, a predecessor to today's OHL, asked him to try out for the Kitchener Green Shirts, later known as the Kitchener Dutchman. The original conversation had revolved around him trying out for the team and then returning to South Porcupine. However, after seeing him on the ice, they asked him to stay. He recorded 62 points in 30 games with the Green Shirts and then was called up by the Rangers for 21 games where he recorded five goals and five assists. He would play parts of five years with the Kitchener Rangers before being called to the New York Rangers in 1967. He recalls being in awe of the city, as South Porcupine was the furthest thing away from New York City. He grew accustomed to the busy life of the big city and eventually settled in with his team. Prior to joining the NHL, his coaching Kitchener had previously coached a player with the last name Tejuk. His coach struggled to pronounce Kachuk and simply just referred to him by the name that he knew and it stuck with Kachuk through his second year with the Rangers as coaches, teammates, and broadcasters frequently called him Tejuk. Eventually, during a mid-game interview, he had an opportunity to correct the broadcaster on the proper pronunciation, but it didn't stick. They mispronounced his name or used it as a nickname, and it followed him for the first seven years of his career. Eventually, in the 1969 season, 
The team made an announcement on the proper pronunciation of his name, correcting the error from years prior. Walt Kachuk. Walt would play with NHL greats such as Jean Rattel, Brad Park, Rod Gilbert, and Vic Hadfield. He would center a line titled the Bulldog Line with Bill Fairbairn and Dave Ballin. His contributions focused mostly on setting up other players, but he quickly became known for his abilities as a defensive forward. In 1972, Kachuk was asked to play for Team Canada in the 1972 Summit Series. This is where his ancestry becomes an interesting topic. Kachuk was the first ever German-born player to play in the NHL, yet he had no connection to any German heritage, had grown up and developed his skills in Canada, and therefore identified, understandably, as a Canadian hockey player. It's also worth noting here that Walt Kachuk is not related to Keith, Matthew, or Brady Kachuk, and their names aren't even spelt the same. Walt Kachuk declined the offer to play in the Summit Series due to his obligations of coaching a summer hockey school. At the time, he and other players did not understand the long-lasting legacy of the Summit Series and what it would mean to hockey. To them, it was just a trip, a few games of hockey, and the chance to beat another hockey nation with some slight political undertones. To him, there was no real need to go as the hockey school he was running in St. Mary's, Ontario was a large and important community event in a community that he had purchased a farm and now lived in and provided valuable experiences to over 100 children a week. He traveled to Toronto to be at training camp with Team Canada but could not commit to their double practice schedule of one practice in the morning and one practice in the afternoon and still make it back in time to commit to the hockey camp. He declined the offer to take part in the series and his place was filled by Flyer Center Bobby Clark. Kachuk went to the Stanley Cup Finals with the Rangers twice, losing once to the Bruins and once to the Canadians. His career was brought to a close during a game versus the Los Angeles Kings on February 3, 1981. At the age of 33, a puck was flipped up and caught Kachuk in the eye. Original reports said that he would be out for two weeks. The original diagnosis was retinitis, an inflammation of the eye. However, as the inflammation went down, it was clear that there was more damage than originally thought, and Kachuk had lost the central vision in one of his eyes. He considered himself lucky as Craig Patrick, coach and general manager of the Rangers at the time, allowed him to join the team on the bench during his recovery. After a few weeks, Patrick gave him more responsibility, first running the defense of the New York Rangers, and then eventually with the forwards. Kachuk completed his NHL career with 945 games played, 227 goals, and 451 assists. Despite never playing under the German flag and identifying as a Canadian hockey player, he became the first German-born National Hockey League player. Fortunately for him, he was a player of some renown and considered among the New York Rangers legends. Despite not winning a cup in 13 years, he was widely respected and loved by the hockey fans in the city. Along the list of players, who were first from their respective country, there are a wide collection of players born in one place, raised in another, who made it to the NHL, but did not have a career of particular note. Luckily for us and fans of German hockey, Walt Kachuk gave them something worth remembering.
Storytime Hockey is written and produced by me, Travis Duncan, who has no regretskis, not even one. Thank you for listening. Please click like, subscribe, or whatever other option is provided to you by your podcast platform. Every review and rating that you leave behind increases the odds that this podcast will appear in someone else's suggested podcast list. So be a good neighbor and hit five stars. Thank you again for listening, and we'll talk to you next episode.